What's up, everyone? It's Danny Haifong, Cold War Brew Podcast. This is a special Q&A episode, so I encourage all who come here to get in the queue so we can have a conversation today. It's Saturday, 2 o'clock out here in the East Coast of the United States. Just got off of a stream on the left lens. I hope some of my people who were in that stream come here. So please do get in the queue. Let's have a conversation about anything you'd like related to the Cold War, related and not related to the Cold War. Let it let us let's talk. All right. So let's talk here about 30 minutes to 45 minutes today. I was sick for a little bit, so apologies for those who uh, were expecting this podcast last Sunday. Had a pretty bad stomach bug. I am better now, luckily, and so I'm going to do one today and probably do one tomorrow as well uh, at the regular time, 11.30 a.m. Eastern. But uh, I don't see anyone in the queue yet, but then again, sometimes it is slow. Okay, I got one person in the queue, and we will start there. Hello, Z, and then we got Andrew, so we do have people in the queue. All right, let's, let's make this happen. All right, Z, you can unmute yourself. Hello, hello. Hi. Hi, comrades. Okay, wondering why... Okay, I know Marx is cool. He makes He's logical. He makes sense. But I get surprised. I mean, not surprised, but I always wonder why people get angry or, you know, annoyed whenever other countries, especially countries of color, aren't perfectly Marxist or perfectly European, you know communist the ideals and everything and it's like people forget that communism is indigenous communism is inherently black and brown and you know all these european concepts just came centuries after wondering if you have any thoughts on that like why people especially in the american left get mad whenever a country isn't exactly perfectly marxist Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think what's interesting about that, and, I, and I've I've definitely seen that, you know, that that there's a there's a particular strand of the Western left, mainly white left, that has a, a big issue with countries resisting imperialism, with peoples resisting imperialism, and uh, they claim that these countries don't have the exact model, as you said as maybe Karl Marx or or even <laughs> I like to say with a lot of these like fourth international Trotskyists, like the International Socialist Organization before it disbanded. Uh, they they like Lenin before uh, he died, but they don't like anything they came after, right? So they, they, they have this, well, the Russian Revolution was perfect up until Lenin died kind of understanding, which is completely infantile. But but I think what's interesting is you may, you bring up a good point, and I, and, I, and I think it's important to understand this dialectically, is that, yes, Karl Marx and Marxism is a product of what we could call communalism and the, uh, uh, I guess you could say, so-called uh, uh, pre-private property uh, period in, in history where uh, there were societies that, even though they were a lower stage of development, you could say, um, they certainly had the basis in terms of their social relationships in, in communism. And, and what we would like to see communism in the modern form be a classless, while at the same time uh, maintaining what is salvageable from uh, the uh, stages of development that we've gone through. So, so I think what makes, I think part of this is, is, is racism, right? Is this under, is, is this kind of inability to understand that yes, many peoples and nations around the world can go their own path and apply the principles of socialism in the way that they see fit for their own conditions. So there is some of that. And then I think there is this dogmatism and sectarianism, which, makes it difficult for these same forces to uh, look, actually look at Karl Marx, look at Marxism as, as really a living, breathing uh, framework rather than one that's kind of static 
in the text, right? I think that there's a lot of this, okay, you read Marx and then you're going to build Marxism just by doing that. Take a quote, pull a quote, and that that will suffice. But, you know, not even Marx believed in that. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. And, and I think some of it has to do with race and racism. And another part of it has to do with this dogmatism, which I think also is a purely Western problem. It's, right, it's like inheriting the old way of looking at politics and uh, projecting it onto Marxism. Uh, Marxism, right, if you read any documents from actually existing socialist countries, uh, you'll find definitely a lot of commonalities and principles, but you'll also find a lot of dissimilarities or lack of similarity in how they apply those principles to their own context. So the constitution of the Communist Party of China will not look like the constitution of the Communist Party of Cuba, uh, and so on and so forth. But um, I'm going to get to Andrew now. Uh, you are the next caller. You can unmute yourself. And then Z, if you want to come back um, and follow up, uh, you can. Uh, but Andrew, uh, you are now able to unmute yourself. Hey, Danny. Hi. Hey, um, my question is, um, well, I, I I always take forever to get to the point, but I'll try and get it quick. Um with regards to, um, <clears throat> there's kind of a conversation I heard uh, Ben Norton talk about a little bit yesterday with another caller, which is like uh, how to describe the people who are kind of the the titans of capitalism today. Do they have allegiance to any country? How much does nationalism play into their politics? And then the the thing I want the thing I want to combine with that question is like in the context of, for instance, the Ukraine crisis and war with Russia and NATO and everything. Um, how far are these titans, in your view, willing to go um, to preserve the national hold that they have over capital? Or if that starts to fall apart, if the dollar starts to collapse, if these if the the ruble and yuan and, and some of these other regional currency agreements for international trade start to really tank the dollar. I mean, will these people in your best guess, will they just leave or, you know, for instance, we've seen Robert Kagan and some other crackpots write articles kind of trying to soften the public's understanding of nuclear war. And, and, you know, you could interpret that as kind of games or brinksmanship, like trying to kind of, um, flex your muscles enough to to spook russia or you could look at it in a more terrifying way where there are some kind of christian fanatics some evangelical types who believe in like the rapture and this type of bullshit and there's the kind of coincidence in israel of the i can't remember what it's called exactly like the temple movement where they want to destroy al-aqsa and build a, a jewish temple and so i wonder um with with that really convoluted question what what do you think like should people really seriously be worried that uh, there will be like intentional nuclear war if all of this American project starts to fall apart or will they just kind of jump ship uh, Roman empire style and create something new for themselves somewhere else? Hmm. I mean, that's a very good question. I, in my heart of hearts, I do not believe that the Titans of industry, Titans of capitalism, this, uh, uh, these increasingly fewer uh, sort of oligarchs, I don't think they have the capacity to jump ship and create something new. Like, I, I, I think I am very, I am actually, and this isn't to be like, like a fear monger or anything. I do believe though that all signs point to that if the United States truly does lose its position economically and is unable to stabilize its financial system and is unable to maintain its supremacy, uh, that these forces will push for a, a nuclear situation with those countries it sees. And I think this will primarily be targeted at China. And I think Russia will be just a, a, a great uh, kind of collateral to add in there. Uh, I think that that will definitely be a very realistic uh, uh, 
outcome of what I think we're seeing. And I think is the point of this whole podcast is all of the talking about all the reasons why the U S is so hostile towards China, why there is this new cold war. And it's all leading up to this because there are certain dynamics, certain trends that just can't be arrested at this time. And as you said, with the Ukraine crisis, there really is a lot of this soft peddling nuclear war, this attempt to uh, make that doomsday scenario more palatable. And all of that is to lead into the situation of keeping it as an option. Now, it would be an absolutely disastrous option. It would be something that would definitely blow back in the face of of big capital. I don't think that these forces, and I think this is the optimistic part of this, so I don't think these forces understand how presenting such a situation or even keeping such a situation as an option, such a move as an option, really does present opportunities for there to be just massive resistance. And I think that it would backfire deeply for the United States, for the big titans of industry, not just the United States, but all of their partners, so willing partners and, and, and those corporate forces that, that dictate them, it would be a disaster to, to engage in this scenario actively. But I do think it's, I, I do in my heart of hearts, if all things are considered now and are going to continue to go in the direction they're going in without massive opposition to it, which we don't have just yet. I would say that, yeah, there, I think that there, I don't think that like, I I don't think that these forces like, like, I mean, just think of some of these folks. I mean, we're thinking about, uh, you know, the, the biggest uh, capitalists who, who, even if they don't say it openly, they really do want to isolate and strangle any real competitor. And for decades, they haven't been able to stabilize the situation for themselves with the system that they have. I don't think that they can make a new one. The only, the only reform, the only major reform that can happen under the current trajectory of capitalism is a new iteration of fascism. That's the only, I think we're already kind of in that, so to speak. We're seeing the rudiments of it. But I think a new iteration of fascism that is openly and wholly antagonistic toward, right, and and antagonistic toward any so-called competitor, any so-called quote-unquote threat, nation-state threat, political movement threat, uh, I think that is more likely to occur where you have just a political force, a new political vehicle for the bourgeoisie that openly targets China for this kind of doomsday scenario and also openly calls for the complete and utter suppression of any resistance to any of this. So so that, I think, is a much more likely scenario outside of the nuclear option, right, is that we do see a new rise in fascism in order to clamp down on the, um, you know, clamp down on the resistance. And then we're going to see a lot of resistance. So thanks for that question, Andrew. I'm going to go to oh, long time, long time supporter, big teal. I'm going to make you the next call. You can unmute. Thanks so much for coming. You can unmute yourself if you are here. Big teal. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah. Sorry. I had to. Hey, do some things. Hi, Danny. Good afternoon. I'm sorry, I'm sorry you cut out a little bit. Oh, can you hear me better now? I can hear you at times, but it's like um, there's like interruptions. Oh, no. Um, I don't know then. I guess maybe I can try to call back in. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe try uh, resetting and we can. Um, I could take your question later if you wanted to try to. Um, yeah, I'll or, do that. You know, we can talk uh, later if um, there's a way Not to. Not a problem. I don't know. I'll call back. Or something. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right. So I'll make 
Ken, you are up. Uh, you can unmute yourself. Hey, Danny. Hi. How you doing? Doing okay. Thanks for coming. Um, I wanted to ask you about your take on this leftist infighting. And there's people that are ostensibly leftists just having so many disagreements about different issues. And when you look at their positions, uh, they agree. They agree on maybe 85, 90% of issues, but like these, there's certain issues that just set people off. And I'm just wondering if you think it's a matter of people not really knowing how to disagree, uh, or is it a function of kind of the dynamics of an online exchange versus in-person kind of exchanges? Or do you think it's something a little more sinister where there are outside influences that are magnifying these tensions between these these different um, people that are in on the left, like some sort of psyop operation? Like I, I think about uh, there's this guy I hadn't even heard of him, uh, Owen Higgins, mm. who has just been going after Glenn, uh, Glenn Greenwald and Max and Aaron Mate. And I mean, it, there's just, uh, you can sense that it's just something really personal. Mm -hmm. It's just gone beyond like a disagreement and a willingness to try to, you know, disagree dis disrespectfully or come to some sort of like uh, middle ground. And it, it's, I mean, it, like he's done several episodes on it. Uh, this is just what pops into my mind right now, but there are other examples. And I was just interested in, in your take on that because years ago, I remember uh, Abby Martin having uh, a an academic, uh, Nafiz Ahmed, on her Breaking the Set show. And he was talking about how the Department of Defense was weaponizing social science. Um, and it, he wrote an, a Guardian article uh, in 2014 where um, the DOD was just funding all kinds of social science to study unrest and to come up with uh, techniques uh, that are that they can use in operations, quote unquote. So yeah, just I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a good question. I, I, I'm there. I'm tired of <laughs> the, 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 you know, I, I'm, I am I've gotten very tired, especially over the last, I would say, let's say the last quarter of a year, just seeing the ways in which there has been a lot of divisions around certain issues coming up and not a lot of good discussion amongst ourselves. I mean, with someone like Owen Higgins, I mean, from what I know of him, I've tried to steer clear. I've, I've, I've seen bits and pieces from others uh, sharing him. And it does seem like someone like him is trying to capitalize on what I think are these they're, they're like these like real like kind of trendy algorithmic kind of ways like 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 to talk it seems like to talk trash about another person that may have a kind of a big following like an Aramate or Jimmy Dore or something like that will in their minds maybe improve their own clicks and likes and so some of this I see is almost just almost like business decisions kind of like these conscious business decisions that uh, to me, are, are just rooted in the, the nastiest of, of sectarianism. I do truly wish uh, that we could have a real conversations amongst ourselves. I think that there is some of that lacking, especially among those of us who who do see eye to eye on so many issues, but maybe don't see eye to eye on one. I, I mean, I, I do this podcast about China, and I could say that the vast majority of people on the left do not agree with my takes uh, on China. And and I found I've I've learned over the last couple of years, especially during this pandemic, that it is just hard to have those conversations. That there's a lot of hesitancy around them. Uh, that no matter how much outreach you do, you may just not get a response back. And people have their priorities and their uh, specialties and what they want to focus on. And so so there is, I think, just 
at the base level at the i guess i guess at the the least insidious level there is just some of this is just like people one trying to opportunistically exploit whatever like hot button issues and attack those they think will help them get more clicks and then on the other i think that there's just with some issues it's just it's not trendy and i think it falls into the same issue is that if it's not trending if it's not uh really something that's going to uh, uh bring a lot of positive attention through hot takes or whatever it is then it kind of gets ignored like the issues that i cover but I think that there is something to be said about how overall, I think at this bigger picture, bigger picture level, that one of the reasons why divisions on the left are so hard to address is because there is this long history of infiltration. I mean, that's one example you cited about social sciences. I mean, that's that, that's a long history of academia being wedded to the to the military industrial complex, to the intelligence apparatus. Um, and uh, I would say that on the left, that has been a huge problem, right? That this McCarthyism is not just an ideology. It's not just red baiting, that there is active attempts to destroy leftist organizations and leaders that continues on into this day. And I think the way it continues is through both the legacy, how we inherit that legacy, and then how now, how I see it going on, because there's not really an organized force on the ground, which gets into part of your uh, discussion about people um, interacting on online spaces. I do think that there is limitations to that, at least politically when you're trying to change things. Um, Because we don't have an organized on the ground force that's really driving the, the, I guess, the vehicle of the movement, so to speak, we, uh, uh, you know, we are more vulnerable, I think, to the this larger scale campaign of repression, which targets individuals, you know, the attacks in the Daily Beast against me, the way that, you know, our Lee Camp and others and all people all across YouTube and other platforms have been censored. Like, that's a larger scale campaign that... Is meant to just to, is just directed at any alternative voice, uh, but its ultimate goal is to uh, destroy and disunify and and weaken the left. So so I think that there's there's many components of this, and I, I I'm sure I'm missing some part of this, but I think it's just a bigger yeah it's a bigger issue, and um, yeah we're we're going to continue to navigate it, and I think you know I think for for journalists, for analysts like myself, I'm always trying to. S- it's always about like where where are forces on the ground, and I think you have, I think we have a lot of, you know, just a lot of change that needs to happen, a lot of development that needs to happen politically, um, for uh, for us to be in a better position to rectify these things, because I do think that one of the worst ways of rectifying disagreements is to try to leverage um you know leverage some of these platforms in a way that these platforms want you to leverage them in so that's why you get a lot of this like debate stuff and like okay who's right and who's wrong rather than well where are we going you really need a political organization like a like a vehicle so we can get on the same page and move together rather than move apart. And, and, and media, I don't know if media, media can help facilitate that can be part of it. I don't know if media will be it, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. I saw, I heard your exchange with uh, Matt Stoller um, Mm. when you were talking to Bree and it, I just, you seem to be coming from such an emotional, uh, I don't know if he was just not, doing well but he was driven by his emotions in that exchange Mm -hmm. and i just lost a lot of respect for him because i didn't really hear any hard evidence uh, on his side i mean he has to come up with evidence that is that is irrefutable 
And that's how we need to approach this from a kind of a scientific skepticism. And he was not giving it. And it was just, it turned into like name calling and it Mm. was, it was, yeah, I just lost so much respect for him. Yeah. Understood. (laughs) Understood. That was a rough, I would highlight, I, you know, I was like on Tylenol and was just well enough to do it. And surely I was definitely angrier and definitely more emotional than I could let on, but I certainly wanted to keep it to the, to the actual conversation at hand. And, and yeah, it's very frustrating when that happens, but it almost, it's something I've experienced probably not just on this issue, but on many others uh, over and over and over again. It's, it's when you're, you know, when you're debating someone who has political, you know, who's kind of like, who has interests, they're sort of speaking based on their interests rather than on what, um, you know, rather on like what we should be doing slash talking about to get to a better place. But it's like, there's a lot of these kind of personal and political interests that I notice are just show, just show through in that moment, but maybe don't show through less when he can pose as like this, uh, arbiter, this like neutral arbiter of information, but nonetheless, uh, Ken, it was really great. We have a lot of people in the queue. Yeah, so yeah. let them in. Um, but have uh, you talked yeah. to Vijay Prashad? Uh, just just that last question. That's it. And I'll get off. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I've not talked to him in a bit. I was trying to get him on my program. If you wanna bug him, I've been trying to get him on my program to talk about the Ho Chi Minh book he just released. Um, but I've not heard from him, but I have worked with him in no cold war back when I was in that group. Um, so, but I've not talked to him recently, but, uh, but thanks for your contributions. Um, and yeah, we can come back around if there's time. So definitely stick around. Um, so I'm going to put big teal in here because they were waiting. Um, and then Xander, I'm going to get to you. So stay in the, um, stay in the queue. Okay. So, uh, you can unmute. Okay, so this is my second and last attempt. How is the audio now? No. Okay, you're still a little, still chopping out, unfortunately. Okay, okay, that's fine. I'll just try. No, uh, um, I'll just try it back another continue time. Try. Sorry. Oh yeah, it's still chopping out. <laughs> okay. Well. I'll just listen in and I'll see. What All right. Well, you can also type it in the chat and I'll, and I'll, and I'll get to it. Um, maybe when we're out of callers. Sorry. Okay, not a problem. Okay. So I'm going to pick it to you, Xander. Um, that's a shame because Big Teal has been a big supporter of this work here. So um, definitely if you can't type it in the chat, please do. But Xander, you are the next caller. You can unmute. Hey, do you hear me? Yes. Uh, so this is uh, Clematis. I was talking to you earlier on the YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have one question and one um, one thing I want to tell to people. Uh, anyway, so my question is that um, uh, so this Bush thing with the Iraq, you know, Ukraine blunder that he spoke about. I mean, when have you ever known Bush from making a joke like OM seventy five? You know, from his speeches, you know, he usually, you know, he's known to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was obviously scripted that he would say, especially after that line where he is like, you know, saying these things about, you know, obviously about Ukraine. But these are like things that people always think about you, Iraq about. And then he says, Iraq instead of Ukraine and he's like oh I'm 75 you know and uh, I just I wonder what your opinion is. do you really think that's real or you know is it fake and also for those interested you should google HMG Trojan horse which is a anonymous data leak about Russia uh, it's about HMG means Her Majesty's government mm. and um, if you google that you'll find some interesting stuff Thanks. Thank you. Um, I mean, I have not heard the idea that this is scripted. I think it's it's interesting. I'm willing to entertain it because I do think that these motherfuckers are insidious enough and uh, sociopathic enough to do so. Not sure. Oh, and and, uh, you know, you know that event where Trump got like 
toilet paper stuck to his shoe when he was walking up Air Force One, and there was like big headlines everywhere. That was so made up, you know. It was made up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I think there's something to be said. You know, I I don't know. I would like to I would like to see more about this because. On the one hand, he did seem very smooth in his gaffe, George W. Bush, that is, in saying, you know, oh, one man invading Iraq, right? I think that he was very smooth in it, and the way he handled it was smooth. But I don't, you know, yeah, it's hard for me to see where that would be of benefit, except for one area where it's kind of like testing the waters where people are at. I did see the response to it, although it did get a lot of media press and coverage. There was not a lot of anger. I mean, of course, that's on the left. Whenever we see George W. Bush do something like this or anybody, we jump on it and we're like, ah, look, you know, look, and we should, we should continue to do that. Look, he admitted to war crimes. But then the general, in general, though, liberals and, and those supposedly on the opposition of the GOP, their opposite, their their response to it was like little to none, right? It was just seen as this like oopsie daisy, like that, and then that was it. So I could see where there could be like a measure of, hey, what are we, where are we at right now in in, in the sentiment? You know, where where are we at in terms of being able to get away with this kind of thing? But that's all I can think of. But I don't know until I see more facts. I would like to. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's really no, there's nobody saying this. This, it's just me. My girlfriend says I'm being conspirators. <laughs> you know, well, so okay. <laughs> it's just me, you know. And I, I've, I've watched a lot of Bush speeches back in the day, mm. and I just, you know, this seems scripted to me. You know, he would never, he would never make a joke like that. Like, oh, I'm 75. That must have been written in the document. You know. Yeah. Anyway, oh well, uh, well, he's anyway. he's he's arrogant. So I, I, I was very surprised by that. But yeah. Anyways, uh, everybody check out HMG Trojan Horse. Google that and you'll find treasure troves about the UK undermining Russia in the past, Mm. you know, 10, 15 years. Mm. It's anonymous, you know, posting that and which is anonymous was supposed to be against Russia. But, you know, I don't know. Mm. Anyway, thank you so much. I'm going to hang up. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, thank you for your participation. All right, Ahmed, we got you next. Um, you can unmute yourself. Uh, hi, Danny. Hello. Uh, uh, my question um, is going to be following up from uh, one of the one I posted up in uh, during the live stream. I don't know if you uh, saw uh, Ben Norton's uh, interview or podcast with uh, Robbie. Robbie Martin uh, a while ago, but they were discussing um, this sort of convergence between right wing populism and the left and how it, it, you know, sort of uh, came up during discussions nowadays with the whole anti-war right uh, rhetoric that it's the right talking and being most vocal against the war with Russia, despite their obvious and clear um, push for war with uh, China and just, you know, calling it as more of a cynical, you know, uh, plot uh, of, you know, divisions within the ruling party. Uh, the reason I bring this up is because, you know, figures like Sagar and Jetty and Matt Stoller, have, I've seen this trend going on a while back, especially with Sagar back when he, him and Crystal were on the Hill uh, during, you know, COVID, COVID-19 early on when they were spending this whole, you know, China, uh, China's responsible for COVID, it's lab mm-hmm. leak, all of that. And I was, you know, surprised to see that Crystal was going along with it a lot of times. And this narrative really started permeating much of the left uh, discourse-wise. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering what your take is on how, uh, a lot of the right, their rhetoric and, you know, much of their, uh, what was it, uh, talking points against China has infiltrated or, you know, seeped into so-called leftist uh, uh, discussion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that 
it's a very i think it is a, a serious problem i mean it's one that is not getting a lot of attention but uh you know someone i hope to have either on this show or on my youtube channel is alan mcleod because he's done some great work on this as well and you know he wrote a whole article about tucker carlson and, and he's also written about um uh, Sagar and jetty right that, that there is this uh it's well funded it's these huge they either come from the news media or they come from think tanks right Sagar's at the hudson institute which is a neocon think tank it does receive much corporate funding um, to promote very neocon anti-china talking points so i think it's a huge pro i think it is a big problem because there's there's a lot of a lot of acceptance to it. And I think some of this is because there's been a real normalization of this uh, uh, continuing drift rightward in the United States. It's been normalized, so to speak, so much so that there is this almost like this uh, mantra now where it's like, okay, because Trump won because he got whatever 65 million voters that and because Hillary Clinton called them deplorables that means that you have a lot of um, uh, people that we need on our side thinking like right wingers so now uh, we need to engage more with the right and i don't necessarily disagree with that 100% like i don't think it's a dogmatic oh no you just got to reject everyone who votes for trump and no oh, no you just got to can't engage politically uh, with anyone who may have voted for Trump or anything like that. I don't think it's so dogmatic, but I think there's a bigger problem beyond just electoralism that you speak of. It's that there is this astroturfing on the right of leftist positions. I mean, look at a guy like Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is like the, he called, he, you know, called himself a cultural Marxist. He's a total white supremacist. He is someone who has made a career off of doing this. And the fact that it's been normalized, like with Sagar and Jetty being so accepted and people like him and they say, oh, well, he tells the truth on some things and can kind of ignore other aspects, I think I think is its own kind of dogmatism that, that, that is frightening in the sense that it, it normalizes this rightward drift. And it does generally and almost entirely center on China. It is almost... It's almost like this psychological operation meant to normalize anti-China politics, new Cold War kind of politics. The farthest right of these politics embodied by people like Stoller and people like Njeti. I mean, if you hear them talk, you don't even need to know who pays them. But it's helpful to know who pays them, right? The, uh, what, what I think uh, Stoller's uh, he has his own... He's a part of his own think tank, libertarian think tank, Hudson Institute, neocon think tank. I mean, these. If anyone works for a think tank, just think that they're they are talking about political interests from one section of the bourgeoisie, the one section of the ruling class, or another. They're not independent. You don't go to work for a think tank to be an independent journalist, to be an independent analyst. You go to think tanks so you can get a job uh, that pays you nicely to. Uh, spread the message in a palatable way of the ruling class. And that's what they're doing. And it is very dangerous. And it is something that, that we do need to talk more about. And uh, we need to fight against the normalization of this. So, so thanks uh, for that question. And I'm going to, um, uh, I was, I had one more question. Sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. Right. Um, my other question was what, how do you see the fallout of um, like the consequences of the of the UK world? Because win or lose, uh, whether you uh, the US is able to meet its to uh, uh, was it accomplish its objectives of weakening Russia, uh, because so that's one of the disagreements that I feel like is is between the Democrats and Republicans is having uh, Russia support them against China rather than the Democrats, you know fight them on uh, on two fronts uh, sort of mentality is that win or lose in uh, in ukraine they're pumping in you know what they just approved 40 billion dollars worth of of military hardware this london lease program that at the end of the day these are nazi uh was the battalions and 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 thousands upon tens of thousands 
of Nazis running around with sophisticated military hardware, that there will be a, a, a huge blowback, you know, not just here in the U.S. that already has this, uh, you know, institutional uh, white supremacist, you know, uh, history, but in Europe, which will cause, uh, I, I, I feel, a, a large strain on U.S. Uh, and European relations once, you know, it's no longer, uh, what was it, Tal- uh, the Taliban or, or, or these so-called Islamist uh, fanatics that are running around in, in Europe, but white faces uh, causing terror. Yeah, in terms of the Ukraine war, I mean, uh, the war that's happening there, it's hard to say where this is going to go, but it's it's certainly not going to end anytime soon. I mean, that's what this $40 billion Ukraine bill is all about. It's about prolonging it. It's about making it a permanent war. And, and I think this was already the case. I mean, this was already kind of a permanent war since the coup. Uh, it was definitely, I would say, more concentrated. Now you have kind of the entire, I guess you could say, the entire imperialist world in on it and uh, led by the United States and it's having great ramifications. And so I think I think that Russia understands that it's probably a permanent war at this point and that it's, and, and I think that's why it's really been increasing its capacity to uh, shore up Donbass, the region of Donbass, and I think it's been doing actually been doing quite a good job. It's got that land bridge to Crimea now, and uh, I think that's going to be the mission from here on out is to shore that up to ensure that the east is is safe uh, as can be, and to weaken Ukraine's forces to the point where it can't really do what it has set out to do, which is you know keep that civil war going. But I do think that this is going to be a conflict that does last in some form or another um but sorry 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 of danny uh, i was i was talking more about how you know because the u.s has made it clear that they want this war to last as long as possible but mm-hmm. that's been the case in uh, afghanistan as well but despite that there they you can't contain the spillover effect of you know pumping in billions tens of billions of dollars yeah. of of hard, you know, of, of sophisticated military weapons to extremists, you know, Nazis in Ukraine, just like you couldn't contain it in Afghanistan. And that spilled over into Iraq, uh, Syria, and all, all these other countries in the Middle East. I'm saying, what, what do you think is going to be, you know, the backlash when that does happen into uh, places like, gotcha. you know, Poland and, and Hungary and, and these other more susceptible, even Germany, uh, which is starting to uh, uh, get, you know, whatever is going on in, in Germany, which is not not all that great. But that's that was what I was uh, mm, asking. Gotcha. Oh yeah, no. Well, that's a good question, and uh, I'm going to answer it quickly so I can get to the next callers. Uh, for next, going to probably be on for the next 15 minutes, and I want to get to Big Teal's question in the chat because unfortunately they were unable to to get in here on the call. So. That's a really good question. I think that we're going to see similar to what happened in the uh, broader Middle East, Arab world. We're going to see sort of the spread of this extremism. I think with Ukraine, uh, Russia, unlike the United States when it intervened, Russia is doing a good job weakening these forces. But unfortunately, the United States is pouring more support for them into Ukraine which inevitably will also, and it already you already see it with Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO. You're going to see this across the region. You're going to see these countries double down on their anti-Russia policy, and that in and of itself is going to have a an effect politically, where the entire region, Europe, goes further drifts to the right and empowers these very forces that while Russia can weaken them in Ukraine, can weaken them in the East, can make sure that the East is safe, it can't really necessarily control the fact that these forces are going to gain more prominence outside of Ukraine and also maybe in part of Ukraine that is, that will remain, um, you know, out, uh, uh, outside of Russia's scope. Um, the west of Ukraine, right? Like that, that there, I think we'll see more reaction. And, and of course, in these other countries, which already are moving further and further to the right, 
whether you talk about Poland, Hungary, whatever, these Eastern European countries, former Soviet countries too. I mean, so, so when we were Soviet republics, like they are all moving to the right already. This is only going to make things worse because the United States is playing such a heavy hand in supporting the very forces that uh, 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 carry the mantle of the the of, of the scourge of fascism. I mean, that's what the United States is doing. But I want to get to Anthony. Anthony, you've been waiting. Um, you can unmute. Oh, thank you so much. How's it going, Danny? It's going okay. Thank you for coming. Yeah, well, uh, I just had on my mind, well, actually, it's just kind of kicking around in my mind all the time. And uh, something you said earlier made me think of it. When, when you know, someone asked, well, what do you think of the, uh, well, first, let me say, I think, you know, the left, we can admit it's not in government anywhere to be found in the United States. So, I mean, if it's anywhere, it's, it's like on YouTube and Twitter, if at all. And uh, you said, you know, what, what, or someone asked, what do you think of people embracing, YouTubers embracing the Marjorie Taylor and Rand Paul over their seemingly anti-war stance? And then you said, you know, you have to be like independent and, you know, there's an even better position than that. And hmm. that whole idea, like, it's just kind of funny. Um, I see it all the time, you know. Uh, I'll say there's a very popular YouTube uh, leftist who, you know, they had a show yesterday and they're talking about, uh, you know, they're, they rhetorically asked the squad and Rokana and all these kind of people, where's Medicare for all? Where's your hearings? Da, 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 da. And it's like, well, actually, they did have a hearing and a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, really, it was an, there was plenty of material to roast them on there. But you're just like kind of making the wrong point because you don't have your full facts. And uh it's just it's 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 like the the research level is so poor that if you could just get some if people knew how to do their own basic research or whatever they could make way better points for the quote unquote left and then I'll say you know there was a issue I think I saw with the baby formula and you know okay uh let's say crystal ball I don't necessarily consider her left I she think she's a millionaire but people who consider themselves left follow her and she said something the other day about, oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, went on about the baby formula, but then she voted against the Democratic plan to address it. How, you know, how could you? And I'm like, okay, this is so sophomoric, imprecise to address it. Like, you're not even explaining a thing. You're not even saying what your position is and what, let alone what the Democrat and Republican was. So just to do my own research, uh, I go on congress.gov. I type in or what everything the house voted on or introduced that that one day and then i'd look up infant formula and there was like five different bills two of uh, two or three of them by republicans introduced two or three of them by democrats and then i was looking at the t- bills i'm like oh my god i might actually vote for the republican bills looking at this because the democratic bills to address it were like let's give some more money to the fda to you know inspect uh you know, facilities that produce it and imports that we're making possible now, you know, more baby formula imports. So it's just like the whole level of research and specificity is in the toilet with the quote unquote YouTube left. That's what I had to say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it gets into this, um, I think it gets into this problem of like, you know, if there is a better position, Right. If there is an independent position we can take on these issues, one where we're we're driving it, right? Because sometimes it feels like the bipartisan, the or the or should I say the duopoly? It still feels like in left discourse that the duopoly is driving everything. That we're just reacting and responding, sometimes poorly, sometimes not so poorly, to what they're doing, rather than trying to synthesize and help people understand why they're doing what they're doing and what that means for us, right? I think that's that's where we're lacking a lot of is a discourse about, okay, well, yes, Rand Paul and Marjorie Taylor Greene may oppose U.S. interventionism more broadly. I wouldn't say they're anti-war, but they are against interventions sometimes, certain kinds of interventions in, in certain issues. But why would they be, right, versus... The Democrats, which you know, Democrats have taken, right? It's like, okay, when Kamala Harris, you no know, people weren't scared during the election 
to be like, okay, Kamala Harris is saying she's for Medicare for all, but that's probably fraudulent, right? She was saying even before her campaign, she was for Medicare for all. Then she adopted it, kind of, and then she dropped it, right? Politicians are uh, very fickle people. They don't. They they're they're all about opportunism, and so we can't really base our politics off of what they say. Uh, and even a lot of what they do ends up having just so many mounting contradictions that it almost always ends up being a net negative, right? Uh, uh, how many times have people in the podcast, YouTube, left, you know, who are focusing on the Democrats have shown over and over and over again that there hasn't really been a, a net positive change driven by Democrats or damn near anyone else in the establishment for like, two and a half generations. So if that's the case, then why is it that when there are certain issues that are at play that we're discussing like Ukraine, that it can be somehow cool and trendy to just like, uh, just take words at, at, at face value. Uh, do we find that to be an effective way to place pressure on who I also believe rightfully so the Democrats are, our primary impediment to a really, I would say, independent left force, right? A, a more, I guess we call it social democratic, and that if we're going to have a, a unified, quote-unquote, left, it's not just communists like myself. Like, of course, I'm going to have to work with, and I want to work with as many people as possible uh, when we do have that, when we do have this rupture point, which I think we're at. Like, But we only work together when we can, you know, uh, really confront the principal contradiction, the principal impediment before us in a way that makes sense, in a way that is independent of the duopoly. We can't just tail whatever, whatever Republicans say at this point in time, just like we can't do that when Democrats are talking. We can, however, and this is where I'm in agreement, doesn't mean that we're just like shaming people for focusing on this. I think it's a very interesting story. I think it's a very interesting development. I'm, oh, I was, I was feeling this way during Donald Trump's administration. Yes, of course we have to leverage the fact that Donald Trump is willing to, uh, whatever, regurgitate some anti-interventionist talking points in order to garner some legitimacy politically. Yeah, we have to understand that and we have to then respond to it. Doesn't mean that we go, oh, well, it's Donald Trump said it, so detente with Russia or uh, uh, or, or uh, talks with the DPRK. Those are bad things. No, we need to be independent and say, okay, Trump is saying this. What is our position? And how do we place pressure on an administration to make that happen. Are we really placing any pressure on the establishment when we just point out, okay, Marjorie Taylor Greene says she's opposed to, to Ukraine bill? Who who are we placing pressure on? How are we doing it? And is it working? I don't know if that's working because it seems like what's happening is that we're in this moment where the right, the Republicans, the GOP, because they've been a minority for a little while, and I think this is true under a lot of Trump's administration, there is this ability to just like oppose Democrats on anything and not have to be held accountable for it. So they'll oppose Democrats on certain issues that we would say, oh, yeah, we would agree with that. We would agree with that this Russian nonsense is, is absolutely unhelpful. We would agree uh, that whatever, Rand Paul uh, opposing drone strikes, whatever. We would agree with that stuff. But there's – because they're in the minority, this is the same with the Democrats. There doesn't really have to be any accountability for it. The same goes for – this happens all the time with Democrats. When Democrats are in the minority, they puff out their chest and they say, look at how much things were for. When they actually have power in the majority, they don't do anything except serve the capitalist class. Like that's, that's kind of what we always get with both parties. And I don't think this moment is any different. So, so I would hope that we can talk about that in a sober way. Um, moving forward. But um, I see that we have um, uh, Andrew in the queue, maybe he wants to respond, but I am going to actually respond to Big Teal first, who's in the chat. I'm just going to read what they had to say. So their question is about the news reports for sources like Harvard Law Today, 
making the claim that Putin's statements about NATO breaking their promise to not expand East and calling it Russian propaganda. But I, I too had the historical understanding that there was an agreement made with Gorbachev after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact. I have seen this more conservative policy on more conservative policy sites like the National Interest, citing Secretary General uh, Manafred uh, Warner's May 17, 1990 speech. But reading it, there is a part that says, quote, this will also be true of a united Germany and NATO. The very fact that we are ready not to deploy uh, NATO troops beyond the territory of the Federal Republic give the Soviet Union firm security guarantees. I wonder, is this part of a larger Western campaign to back out of early agreements or that Russian Russia has not or that Russia does not have material claims, security guarantees to not expand West. Um, so I'm trying to understand the question. Maybe I read it incorrectly, uh, but it seems to me uh, that um, that there is a rejection, calling Russian propaganda, that there are security guarantees that are made to the Soviet Union before the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact. And... Uh, so I guess is it does Russia not really have these security uh, guarantees, or you know why are they calling propaganda? Is this because they're trying to uh, negate um, negate prior security agreements? I I do think that I mean there is a campaign, right? The same thing with the denazification, right? The the rejection of that. It's like oh because Russia said that they're fighting Nazis, it must mean it's not true. And so it's like this Orientalist, uh, anti-Russia, Russophobic kind of framing of like anything Russia says isn't true. They do the same thing with China. Anything China says isn't true. Everything Russia says isn't true. And this is the same here. Uh, There were, you know, the guarantees, what's interesting about this is it's not on paper, right? I mean, it's in speeches. It's in documents that it's in things that people said, but it isn't necessarily like a treaty, right? which would have been, I think, more firm. So this is just a lesson, I think. And I think Russia's learning it. I think uh, it, this was a very perestroika and the end of the Soviet Union. It was a very turbulent time. It was full of mistakes made by people like Gorbachev, full of errors, full of just crass opportunism. And this is a, a lesson from that period that you don't believe a damn thing that NATO tells you. That, that the United States tells you that if you don't have a treaty that can be enforced through the channels of international law, which to be honest, I don't think the United States would abide by anyway, but that's the strongest case you can make. That's the strongest, uh, uh, that's, that's the only kind of security guarantee that is any legitimacy it to, I think to the eyes of the world, let's not even get to the fact that the U S NATO doesn't, uh, U S NATO alliance doesn't view any, thing as legitimate, right? It only views itself as legitimate international law, but Russia didn't get this in a document, in a treaty that could be recognized everywhere, so it, it's it, that, that puts it in a very bad situation. This doesn't mean that the onus is taken off the United States and NATO for breaking what should have been word, right? It should have been word is bond. You said this. You said you weren't going to expand east. It's against your interests as well. Don't do it. Yeah, I, I totally, I, I totally think that the onus and the problem is with the U.S. NATO alliance. It just so happens that it is a very unfortunate error to not get a treaty down saying that this is the stipulations and 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 whatever guidelines and laws around how this is going to go, how the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact of the Soviet Union, whatever how that's going to go. So, nonetheless. It is about breaking that agreement, that that verbal agreement, and and I think you know it's also about framing Russia as just this force that cannot be taken seriously, and so the the question of NATO expansion has been dismissed over and over and over again by the uh, U.S. foreign policy establishment, right? Because they know that if this becomes the principal issue of discussion that the United States loses its credibility because NATO, right, has no right to exist. It, I despise the idea that NATO had the right to exist prior to the dissolution of the Soviet Union. I think that is a political blunder. I think that we should not be adopting that. 
I do not think that we should be legitimizing NATO when it did exist. Any institution that would absorb Nazis, which is what NATO did under Operation Paperclip for I don't know how many years, you know, like uh, half a dozen plus, right, in high-ranking positions in NATO, uh, I don't think we should be doing anything to legitimize its existence as some kind of defense of Europe against the Soviet Union. It's a ridiculous uh, assertion, in my opinion, given that right after World War II, what did the formation of NATO do? It immediately included um, West Germany, right? Immediately. It immediately expanded and that's not defense. The Soviet Union did nothing to Europe to warrant that. What the what what NATO countries were really concerned with was the spread of socialism because it was happening. It happened, you know, East Germany was socialist, a GDR, and there was a fear that this kind of stasis, the stalemate that was produced by the Second World War for the Soviet Union, would mean that more countries may go in that direction, especially because the Soviet Union already had a lot of Eastern European republics. Maybe more Eastern European countries would uh, move toward socialism. I mean, you had the controversy with Hungary, right, in 1956. Like, you had uh, uh, these moments where that could be the case. And so NATO expansion was always about not defense, but it was really an offensive posture against uh, socialism and we shouldn't be legitimizing that. So I, I do despise this narrative that, okay, before 1991, NATO had the right to exist. After 1991, it didn't. But nonetheless, that's just my take on it. Nonetheless, if we're going to go from like a real Mersheimer, John Mersheimer realism kind of perspective, yes, NATO doesn't have the right to exist right now. There is absolutely no basis for it. It is not defending Europe from anything. We are Russia has for the longest time. Russia wanted to join NATO at one point, uh, and, and Russia has been nothing but uh, uh, hopeful that it can get closer to Europe, and it has economically integrated a lot with Europe economically. It's been hopeful to get closer with the United States, uh, and that's been a much more bumpy ride. But nonetheless, yes, of course, NATO doesn't have the right to exist, and the U.S. and its propaganda apparatus is doing everything it can to negate the reality of the fact that NATO expansion is nothing but a prelude to a potential global confrontation that we do not want to see, and it's nothing but a slush fund for the military-industrial complex. So uh, I have Andrew in the queue, maybe he wants to respond to something, and then I think I'm going to close up. Uh, while you're all here, though, you know, make sure that you subscribe to the Cold War Brew podcast, so make sure you hit that button to subscribe so uh, to follow this podcast so that you know when I come on. I think I'm going to come on again tomorrow. Usually my time is 11.30 a.m., but I'll I'll definitely make the room and let you all know when that's happening. Um, And, of course, you know, sustain my journalism. Uh, You can support my work at patreon.com slash dannyhaifong. That's the best way to do so. I'm looking for five more subscribers for the end of the month. That is the best way to support my work. I wrote two columns in the last week since I've recovered from illness. I've done a couple of streams. So I'm back to work and I'm back doing uh, uh, the anti-imperialist journalism that uh, I know that at least some of you who may already follow me um, I do find valuable. So I appreciate all your support. But Andrew, I'm going to let you respond before we close out here. You are now in the queue. Hey, thanks for bringing me back on again. Yep. Um, I had a couple things I wanted to respond to and then actually like, uh, uh, ask for a favor uh, about how much time you got. I could just trim it down. Um, a couple minutes. So, so if you could keep it to two minutes, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, I guess then the, the main thing I wanted to respond to is how you were talking about that the left, however it exists in the U S still finds itself really responding to the duopoly, um, and I, I have, I've been living in Mexico for the last several months and have been trying to do my best to learn about the political mm-hmm. formations here. And also the, the party that's in power right now as a coalition is uh, Morena. And they have been, I mean, just doing far and above better things than you could ever hope to expect from the Democrats. I'm, I'm, 
I'm not always, um, you know, a stan of, of, you know, oh, the new thing. This, I don't think they're perfect is what I'm trying to say. But mm-hmm. they're clearly doing um, – they clearly are, are believe in their agenda. They have an actual agenda that seems to be benefiting far more people in Mexico. And they overcame uh, similar levels of corruption and kind of gatekeeping that you might expect to find in the United States to build this third party there's some differences, there's some pros and cons, um, you know, if you compare the Mexican electoral system to the U.S. But I actually wanted to ask you, um, I'm very extremely new, I don't have a following, so I know it's kind of seems like a risk, but would you be willing to um, talk with me maybe after the show I can message you? I, I know some people in the in the party in Morena that helped to build the party at the state level in Mexico mm-hmm. State, and I think it's actually like kind of a a, a missing spot of analysis in the U.S. left in general is Mexico. I think there's a, a lot of ways we interconnect that people don't realize, and especially for people who are interested in building a third party that is not just you know formidable but can win power. I think there's a lot of lessons we need to take from um, from Mexico, and I I just kind of um, would wonder if you'd want to do an interview. The diff- one difficulty is it would probably need to be in Spanish because I don't know anyone mm. from the party who speaks good English. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would love, I'm, I'm very interested in Mexico's politics. I'm not an expert on that. You know, even someone like Ben, Nor- I mean, Ben Norton speaks Spanish, so he might be someone um, also to connect <laughs> with. Um, but uh, I would love to, I can't talk afterward today because I have some a few things I need to like kind of go to right after this. But you can message me, and then we could possibly find a time, or if, you know, if you have people in mind. Uh, I unfortunately don't speak Spanish, though, so that would be that would be tough. It is a limitation of mine, but we can we can talk about it. So send me a message. Sure, right on. All right. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, of course, of course. Thanks, Andrew. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. So I don't see anybody else left calling in. Thank you so much for coming. This was really good. Thanks for the um, thanks for the participation. Uh, thanks for for coming. I'll I think I'm going to be back on tomorrow. I'll probably do it another uh, like this again. I thought this was better. You know, sometimes bringing in topics can be good, and I know some of you may get a lot out of that. But I think tomorrow I might do more of this kind of interactive. Uh, work uh, uh, at my regular schedule time. So I'll make the room for that. And then I hope to see you there. But um, yeah, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Make sure you uh, follow this podcast, follow me as an individual and follow the podcast here at Cold War Brew. And uh, of course, you know, as I said before, five more subscribers away uh, from my monthly goal at Patreon. Uh, That's how I sustain myself journalistically. That's um, how I I gain my supporters from uh, supporters like you. So if you're able to, you know, there's a link in my profile description. You can go there and, um, you know, whatever support you can give um, is great. But anyway, it was good to be with all all of you this afternoon. Thanks so much for coming. And um, I'll probably see you all tomorrow uh, for another round of of Q&A. And take care. Have a good rest of your Saturday. Bye-bye.